So although the product looks good, the model looks good, it only holds water if they're around as a company <laughs> long term. He so, says the three people that have done startups yep. in the past. Brought to you by iLand, this is the Cloud Bytes podcast, where we've brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bytes in the cloud, and sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about how to assess cloud compatibility with an on-premises infrastructure. I'm Brian Knudsen, Cloud Technologist for Island, and I will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes a great group of people who have deep experience consuming and designing cloud environments with different technologies. Let's start by having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important about being compatible in the cloud. Hey, good afternoon. This is Phil Sellers. I'm a platform systems engineer for an insurance wholesaler based out of Charlotte, North Carolina kind of been on the technical side my entire career. So I love virtualization and all things sort of cloudy along with compute and storage disciplines for the company. So I'm in charge of strategy and go forward and our data center operations. Uh, in terms of compatibility for the cloud, well, that's kind of counterintuitive to the goals of the companies providing the cloud. And they're all about trying to lock you in. So navigating compatibility is not easy. Hey, everybody, this is Daniel Paluzic. I am with VMware, the cloud provider program. I'm part of the solutions engineering team, and I work and collaborate with our VMware cloud providers on monetizing and essentially bringing a VMware cloud solution to market uh, that they provide to end users. Uh, so for me, I look at this where VMware has transitioned to a very flexible model where we can provide the VMware software-defined data center stack inside of an on-premises infrastructure inside of AWS, Microsoft, and so forth. So what's exciting for me is that we can provide that same look and feel across any type of cloud, uh, having this multi-cloud experience for my virtual machine workloads and allowing a choice. Really, at the end of the day, iLand is one of our many cloud providers that provide really a cloud platform with distinct value from a managed service. Thanks for having us on, Brian. My name is Jeremiah Dooley. I'm one of the cloud advocates at Microsoft Azure. I manage a team of advocates who are focused specifically on enterprise platforms and tools. So talking to those communities who identify themselves by the platform that they're operating and the tools that they're using to manage that, and not so much by the individual workloads that are being managed themselves. From my perspective, compatibility is the only differentiator that really matters once public clouds have matured to the point where they all offer the same capabilities. The single biggest challenge that we see customers having when they're trying to figure out how to use the cloud, regardless of which cloud it is that they're using, is how do they rationalize leaving behind all of the knowledge they've built up, the training they've invested in, and the tools that they've used. So really driving compatibility between what operations teams have done on-premises with what it is that they're trying to do in the cloud is something that we've focused a lot of time and investment on. And I think that the partnership with VMware shows off how powerful that can be. Thank you all for joining me. 
So consuming the cloud can be very easy, whether it's an infrastructure as a service, software as a service, or any other type of models of the cloud that are out there. They all stand alone pretty well. The difficulty usually comes into the fact that most businesses already have an infrastructure that a new cloud service has to work with. A customer may want to move some, but not all of their VMs to an infrastructure as a service. They may want to eliminate on-premises email with Office 365 or utilize the cloud for disaster recovery. But all of these scenarios require the customer to consider how it will work and integrate with their existing infrastructure. This is why it's important to consider the compatibility of any cloud services that are being evaluated. Surveys show that VMware is far and away the most common on-premises virtualization platform. So, Phil, I'm interested, as one of these customers, what do you look for in cloud providers to determine how compatible they will be with your on-premises infrastructure and other cloud platforms you're running? Well, from our perspective, and first I'll say we're both a Microsoft partner, and not necessarily partner as in we sell Microsoft stuff, but we're heavily invested and leveraged on the Microsoft platform, .NET development shop. We're also very leveraged on the VMware stack. And so both of my co-panelists are also strategic partners for the company that I work for. We have opportunistically looked at cloud and you know regions where we don't have presence. That's one of the easy sort of sells if we want something to be close to one of the operating companies that we acquire or a customer that we're targeting then you know, it's really easy for us to look at IaaS and app service environments and things like that to kind of meet those needs. But it's one of those things that um, it's easy to sort of get in. Like you said, the on-ramp is smooth, particularly with SaaS applications. You know, that's where I see a lot of shadow IT because, you know, HR department goes out and signs a contract with ADP or some other service provider. And then... Here we are faced with, you know, well, how do we do identity management? How do we do single sign-on? Are we set with another set of credentials? You know, uh, how does it manage? What are the SLAs? Some of the smaller SaaS offerings may not even have those as well-defined or, you know, the department evaluating it doesn't know the questions to ask to establish appropriate SLAs for the application. So a lot of the traditional disciplines that we've had as an IT group can get lost in that conversation as well. When you have you know, a credit card and authority to go and make something happen in a SaaS offering, those are the kinds of things that kind of make the compatibility conversation really tough for us. Yeah, I like how you highlighted the use case of shadow IT because that goes to show how easy it can be to get into particularly a software as a service because... You know, their goal was to make it easier than internal IT was running so that they could capture that kind of business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the interesting thing about VMware's strategy in the last year or so with AWS and running native vSphere on AWS and now in Azure and GCP is that it's a very compatible sort of substrate. It's something that, you know, IT shops like myself, we have years of experience running. We understand it very well. And although we're no longer tasked with having to do the hardware maintenance underneath, we're still able to administer and do all of the normal activities that we do. And our governance models don't have to change. So everything that we've established from an ITIL process, from how we handle and, and intercept tickets and work with our customers, the business users that are in our company, you know, that doesn't need to change the way that hyperscale cloud forces 
uh, transformation in the way that you operate IT. Yeah. And to add to Phil's comment there, I think that what's very valuable there is that uniform or distinct operating model that we provide and provide that choice to any organization to say, hey, I can manage it exactly the same way if it's on-prem in AWS to a VMware cloud provider. I get that same look and feel experience without really changing that paradigm. And I think there's a lot of value there. And it is exciting because one of the things that I've seen is a lot of our VMware cloud providers that says, hey, you know what? I want to productize and provide a service between my data center, AWS, Microsoft, and so forth, right? And provide that flexibility and those options to their end users on how to actually bring that to market. The one area that I would, from the customer perspective, the thing that I would question is really around cost. And so, you know, as you start looking at vSphere on hyperscale cloud offerings, you know, they're not inexpensive. And so from a customer perspective, you need to know and kind of look at that cost going into the solution. But it's also accelerating your time to value because the learning curve is low. You already have the skill sets in-house. And the hardware becomes someone else's problem at that point. Definitely. With the popularity of on-premises, it seems logical to build a public cloud using VMware. However, building a public IaaS platform could be done with a free hypervisor like KVM. Daniel, what advantages do providers and customers gain when working with clouds built on VMware? Reliability, time to market, the ability to have a known quantity with vSphere, right? And not have another, you know, I would say, quote unquote, science project, right? When we talk about reliability, business operations are looking at how can I improve my time to market? How can I ensure that I'm providing a solid platform on that? And I think that there's a lot of choices out there, but uh, we continue to provide not just this hypervisor solution, but what is that entire software-defined data center solution? And how do I provide self-serviceability, right? How do I provide virtual network services through a UI portal, right? Many of these things are out of the box using a VMware platform. So, you know, I think that at the end of the day, it's not just one leg of the stool, that hypervisor, it's how are we providing all of these other resources associated with it? Yeah, I totally agree, especially if the customer already has an investment in any part of VMware. It would be different if the customer didn't have that investment, if they didn't have that foundation, if they hadn't spent time and money on training and building operational processes and scripting and all of the rest of the things that we know go on around the periphery of the core of that VMware hypervisor. If none of that investment had been made, then sure, it might make sense to look at a blank slate and figure out is there a way to be able to build that that uses less capital up front or requires less licensing dollars or those sorts of things? But the vast majority of customers that I deal with, part of the challenge that they have is all of the sunk cost on those things that they've invested in. And moving into a public cloud can't wipe all of that away. We can't get rid of all of that simply because we need to be able to extend the platform that we're using out into the public cloud provider of our choice. And to add to Jeremiah's points and also answer Philip's previous comment on 
there is an initial cost investment for VMware Cloud on AWS or Azure Cloud Solutions, VMware Solutions, excuse me, or so forth, right? I think you're spot on on that. And that feedback has gotten to our team, right? We're thinking of innovative ways of providing, I know it's overplayed that hybrid cloud strategy. And what I mean by that is, there's always gonna be some type of on-premises workload that resides in an organization for specific verticals. And then they're gonna be working with a cloud provider. Could be a hyperscaler, could be another managed service provider. And they're gonna have to figure out how do I hedge between these different operating models, but what is that value? What is that use case, right? And to add to Jeremiah's point, you know, if they have a cost or they already have an investment in VMware, it just makes sense. And it also helps break down those execution costs and that time to market. Yep. And we'll see more of that that comes into play, even just with the go-to-market for all of the companies involved, right? One of the big pieces that we see customers really happy about being able to use across both the on-premises environment and in the cloud are the tools that they're comfortable with and particularly the tools that they've set up to be able to do alerting and monitoring like the vRealize suite. And when they move into a cloud environment and then start to figure out it's not just the the VMware pieces that I have to license, but now I have to figure, I mean, I have a whole new data center. I have a whole new SDDC deployment. How am I going to license the things that I want on top of that? I think that everybody involved will start to find new and interesting ways of building out those services so that you can consume them in the same way that you would consume the rest of the cloud services that you have in there. So some of that, I think, will just be changing how we license and go to market with things without necessarily changing the core value proposition or even the user interface or the capabilities of the software that the customer is using across the two sides. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And I know we're talking hypervisors and platform here, but security and how we model security across our workloads is also part of this conversation. And I think, you know, VMware is doing some really interesting things around NSXT and NSX Cloud that allow me as a customer to also kind of operate in the same way, regardless of where my workload's running, whether it's in a vSphere-based stack or whether it's on hyperscale with native services, you know, that's also powerful for me because someone said it earlier in the podcast that we really are just looking for time to value and trying to do things faster. That's the value proposition that's always been for cloud. And that's what we're being asked by our businesses to really help them accelerate time to value and not have these long cycles of upgrades and projects that it takes to realize their, you know, IT goals that lift the business. So that has made a huge difference for us as we're kind of looking forward with the workloads that we plan to move to cloud or DR to cloud, being able to make sure that our test and dev environments are contained. Um, we have micro segmentation and, and security rules in place no matter where the workload's placed. Yeah, and I think that's a great point because it also goes in both directions. We have lots of customers who haven't gotten to the point where they've deployed NSXT and they haven't gone through that whole process yet, and they don't want to be locked out of the ability to do DR to a cloud provider. But at the same time, we've got customers who have gone all in with NSXT, both for visibility, for micro-segmentation, for 
edge services for all of the things that they're doing and being able to provide that for them natively inside the hyperscaler that they're going to move into so that as they start to adopt things that are cloud native and may not live inside that VMware ecosystem, they can continue to extend those operations further and further outside that bubble. I mean, that's a great example of, you know, we're talking about compatibility, but there are so many different things that get rolled up into that, right? And there's so many different directions that we have to point that, whether we're talking about like this, the networking side of things, whether we're talking about networking capabilities or networking adjacency, how do we allow the environment to tie out to either the on-prem or to the cloud native sides of things, existing operational processes? Do we support the same types of infrastructure as code? For example, between the two of them, I think that when Azure looks at compatibility, not just in the case of the Azure VMware solution, but even larger across customers who have an on-prem environment that are looking to extend that out into the cloud, it ends up encompassing so many different things across so many different points in time because customers are all on a different path and at a different point on that path that it ends up getting very complex very quickly. And our job is just to try and provide as many different types of compatibility on as many different levels as we can. And I think that the VMware partnership with Azure really shows how a bunch of those can come into play and can make life really easy for users who are trying to adopt the service. So let me just kind of flip what you said, Jeremiah, from the customer perspective. It's not compatible today. So there are certain services that Azure has a leg up. Power BI comes to mind. That's a competitive advantage that the Azure cloud has over AWS. Lambda is something that Amazon does extremely well. Their S3 is kind of ubiquitous with object storage, you know, and and so you have other companies like iLand that have their S3 object store compatibility. And, you know, those sorts of choices help from a customer's perspective, but it does highlight the fact that, you know, there are competitive advantages to running a service in AWS or running a different service in Azure. You know, Power BI is one of the ones that we consume extensively throughout our company. And it's something that we've put into the hands of our business users to really tap into our data sources and try to bring insights to the way that they work. You know, what customers should they target? What accounts or pieces of business are we likely to win? And so during our annual kickoff for sales, we do training for our business folks around, you know, a native cloud application sure. that can help them do things and tap into the data sources better. So I don't see that going away and I don't see there ever being complete parity between, you know, hyperscale clouds. But to your point, there are things that I think the players are doing to help us as customers bring things and make them more compatible. Sure. Well, think of it like a pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid, right, we've got the infrastructure services. We've got the basic, and when I say we, I mean cloud providers in general, and we can even put the VMware infrastructure stack in there. We've got the basics of compute and storage and networking. And I feel like from cloud provider to cloud provider, the compatibility is going to be more likely to exist at the bottom layers of that pyramid. As you continue to work your way up, The compatibility is either going to come because the product itself has a standard 
say, for example, any of the managed Kubernetes services across VMware or Azure or GCP or AWS, right? There's a common API there that allows us to look at the compatibility between those with a little bit more joy than we would for something that didn't have that sort of universal compatibility or at least standardized API for us to be able to use. The further you get up that pyramid, and I'd say that Power BI is probably pretty far up that pyramid, the use case for it and the differentiated value of it, I think, is going to argue against making it fully compatible. That said, I feel like there are things that we can do to make this a little bit easier. For example, what if we could take a workload, a SQL database, for example, that's running on-prem right now inside a VMware environment. And that's the data source that we wanted to use to populate a Power BI dashboard. The ability to get that data over and into that and not mess up the operational overhead, not mess up the scripting or the security controls around who has access to that data can be challenging. But what VMware is trying to do is allow you to have that database either on-prem or in a cloud without having to change any of those operational practices. And then what Azure needs to do is that once that data source is inside Azure, even if it's running as a VM on a bare metal server that has a VMware hypervisor running on it, our job is to make it so that Power BI, that differentiated front-end application that drives so much value for your business, has the ability to see that data source and to leverage it directly without forcing you to take that extra step and say, I need you to remove this out of the environment that you're comfortable with. I need you to remove this and put it into something that even though, yes, it's a SQL server, but it's now something that we've put in as a cloud native service to be able to talk to it. I want to drive the compatibility that says, look, it's a SQL server and it's sitting inside an Azure data center. It is adjacent to an Azure network system that will allow it to talk to Power BI. I want you to be able to use the service that you want, that your business is finding value in and tie it directly to the data that you need with as few intervening steps as we can possibly come across. And so that's where I think the idea that VMware has of let's make those workloads compatible at a very fundamental level across multiple clouds then lets you as the customer decide which of those higher level cloud functions makes the most sense for me or provides the most value for me so that I can go all in with that cloud. We could have an entire another discussion around, is it even reasonable to have the discussion of, I want multiple clouds. I want to be able to use Lambda from AWS and I want it to be able to talk cleanly to a data source that sits in Cosmos DB on Azure, and then I want to use Power BI for the front end. And I personally think that we're going to struggle to do that for a long time. And that at this point, the customer would be better served by saying, here are my public cloud options, pick the one that makes the most sense, and then go hard at it. If that's AWS, because Lambda is that core differentiated function that gives me value out of that cloud, then make do with everything else that AWS does and go hard at it. If it's Power BI, then like let's look at all of the different things that we can do inside Azure. But I think that compatibility at a base level is really the driver for what we're trying to do there. Jeremy, I want to play off that and maybe 
continue the thought process, but I see a lot of parallels between what you just talked about with the interactions between different cloud providers' platforms. So you talked a lot about stuff within Azure, and it makes sense that you would work to make sure that that kind of vision would come to light. But like Phil said, they really like Lambda as a functions as a service platform. And you kind of touched on this as, you know, being able to utilize that along with a Power BI, along with, you know, maybe DR as a service that they're doing towards iLand or some other cloud provider. To me, it sounds like a lot of the parallels that we have on premises up to this point, which is if you're using best of breed, you're not buying everything from a single vendor. I'm curious what your thoughts are as to the parallels and how that may go into the future. Are we going to continue having this situation where there's a lot of glue that customers like Phil need to create in between these different pieces to make them work as a whole because they are coming from different vendors? Yeah, I think the core issue there is that we're still limited by the speed of the horizontal network that connects the services. And so if we're building applications that don't mind that the network adjacency between a Lambda function in AWS and a Power BI instance in Azure and the data source, which happens to be a virtualized MySQL database that's sitting inside an on-premises environment, then sure, I think that it's reasonable for us to say, let's go pick the best of the things that we want. The benefit we always had of picking the best storage network compute and hypervisor platforms was that the network that was connecting them was contiguous. And we don't necessarily have that, especially not at a high speed and low latency when we talk out to the clouds. So I get it. Having done infrastructure my whole life, I understand the attractiveness of I want to pick and choose the best of these cloud platforms. I think that doing that with the workloads that we generally see running on premises today is just a challenge. I could be wrong. I mean, Philip, are you seeing something different than that? No, not really. I mean, uh, you heard me say earlier that we're a sort of all-in Microsoft model at this point. We don't have you know specific use cases that force us outside of that, but you know there are certain workloads, and you know we do acquisition work a lot in our line of business. So we have acquired companies that have AWS, and so peripherally we support some applications that were AWS based and have some of those differentiated services as a part of them. But we've strategically chosen to kind of stay in with a cloud provider, in this case, Microsoft, to simplify sort of our world. So I can validate what you're saying there. But, you know, I can also say, you know, we look at certain things and there are better solutions elsewhere. Let's use DR as a service. The activities that you have to do to map your workloads back to specific instances of VM services inside of a cloud is tedious. It's kind of annoying, honestly. So being able to DR into another vSphere environment where you don't have to worry about the sizing and the set unit of measure for each one of the virtual machines is attractive because you can avoid that work effort. And that's some of the friction that I get going with an IS solution from any of the hyperscale providers at this point is you're set to their little, whatever a D3 is, or, you know, whatever the unit measure is for that compute instance. So there are still friction points that I hit as a customer. And there is some of that glue that Brian, you alluded to, that we kind of have to invent, or we work with 
you know, vendors to kind of help alleviate that friction for us as we're looking at, you know, infrastructure as code, as we're looking at the ability to kind of define and declare what infrastructure should look like within our estate. Yeah, and I think Daniel was talking about it earlier, just that idea that as soon as I move into the cloud, I have to flip the operational side of things. DR is one of those places where to combine the comfort of, I know how to do DR in a VMware environment. I know what it looks like on both sides. I know what tools I have available to me. Plus the benefit of, I don't have to buy all of the compute infrastructure upfront. I can buy what I need in order to be able to keep things up and running and keep that placeholder there. But then if I want to do a DR test or if I want to do a failover, I can then dynamically spin up the compute underneath that kind of gives me the best of both. It gives me operational assurance that I know what I'm doing and I have the tools to be able to do this. And frankly, if I was doing it from one of my data centers to another one of my data centers, it doesn't look any different than if I'm doing it from one of my data centers into the cloud. But then it also gives you a little bit of the benefit of working with a hyperscaler, that being I don't have to pre-purchase the hardware. I don't have to have the hardware sitting there running, purchased, depreciating before we pull the trigger and have to go through a DR exercise. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And Philip, going back to your previous point, what I find very exciting in this time in the industry is that a lot of organizations are working with a partner. You got to figure out what that strategy is for your organization and work with one or two distinct strategic partners to help you with this mission, right? I think we have data that says like 82% of organizations are going to have some type of multi-cloud strategy in the next 12 to 24 months. And so I think that's very important that you don't have to go at this alone. You know, there's a lot of expertise in the industry that can help you with that and define and map out what's important for your organization from business priorities or technical priorities, right? How does that map to offerings from each cloud provider or hyperscaler and whatnot? And then figure out what that execution path is. DR is being, you know, there's another one of things that I'm fascinated about because this is an ever evolving conversation. We're always trying to figure out how do we make it easier? How can we have a faster recovery time objective while maintaining that RPO that's needed for functional requirements and so forth. Well, and and I want to add another dimension to this, and that's we don't live in static times. We live in very dynamic times. And not to roast you, Jeremiah or Microsoft, but... (laughs) Bring it on. we're, we're, (laughs) (laughs) we're, We're using Azure Site Recovery. And, you know, Microsoft made a fundamental pricing and storage tier change that affected our overall run rate. You know, compatibility when it comes to cloud is choice when it comes to customer. So being able to easily move a workload from VMware on Azure to VMware on AWS as a pricing change were to occur, that's beneficial to me as a customer because it gives me that choice and helps me avoid being held over a barrel. Uh, and I don't mean that sure. badly, but I mean, as a customer, that's somewhat could happen with your cloud provider. The dreaded vendor lock-in. Yeah. And honestly, even in the on-prem world, vendor lock-in is really tough to avoid. Yes. But it's even more so something that we, we worry about in cloud providers or 
it's something that we just accept that that is the way it is. And, and we move on and accept that as the risk. But solutions like the VMware stack on hyperscale is a great example of how we then get choice back to adapt to changes in pricing models in the environment as it changes over time. Yep. And I think that that would be especially true if one of the big gaps that I see, you're taking off my Azure hat for a second, just looking at it from a customer point of view, is the lack of being able to reliably bring existing licenses into the VMware on whatever cloud platforms. Uh, Most of the way those are set up is that the licensing is included as part of the service that's offered. And so being able to stand up a new service in a third environment, right? If you're unhappy with Azure for whatever reason, whether it's the core VMware offering or something outside of it, like the Azure Site Recovery, and you wanted to move that into AWS technically and from an operational standpoint, you're absolutely capable of doing that. Then you have to start looking at the licensing of the VMware environments and the licensing of the Microsoft environments, and it quickly gets less simple than it looks in the abstract. And so I think you're right. I think that there's a desire for customers to be able to say, it's just a VMware workload. I can run it in anywhere that can host a VMware workload. And hopefully at some point that will be completely true. Whereas today I feel like it is mostly true. Then we have to figure out all of the interesting overhead that goes into the licensing side of things. Yeah, licensing could definitely be a podcast series all on its own, I'm sure. Right. Well, I mean, and right, I work for Microsoft and between Microsoft and VMware, I feel like we've probably got 10 million professionals whose only job it is to figure out how licensing works. And that only gets more complicated when we move into the cloud. And I don't want to talk for any of the other cloud providers, but from Azure specifically, just the complication of the fact that 85% of the workloads that are being run inside VMware environments today have a Windows operating system and are most likely running Windows applications on top of it means that there's a huge amount of work that has to go into what do these on-prem licenses look like once we move them into VMware on Azure. That's not always a bad thing, right? The One of the benefits of having your cloud provider and your enterprise licensing come from the same company is that there's lots of opportunities to be efficient and to sometimes even reduce pricing overall for those things. But I don't want to pretend that it's not something that customers have to worry about, something that customers have to focus on. And then I think that even gets more complicated when we start looking at moving from one cloud provider to another, even if the technical layer underneath it, the VMware layer, is identical between the two of them. Yeah, you know, I can validate that. I mean, we, we spend an incredible amount of time basically negotiating licensing agreements, being advised, whether it's a consultant or you know, it's a subscription to something like Directions on Microsoft. We, we spend a, a lot of brain power just trying to figure out the best strategies. And sometimes it yields really bad technical solutions like segmenting all of our SQL servers onto certain pieces of hardware. And I won't pick on SQL Server, I'll say Oracle database as well. (laughs) Um, You know, getting it segmented onto physical hardware. And that's not what's best operationally for me as a customer. That's not what's best, but it's something I have to do from a licensing compliance standpoint. Yeah, I know that anytime you're dealing with Azure, especially on the licensing side and especially with VMware, as soon as the Azure rep you're dealing with invokes the phrase Azure hybrid benefit, 
things are about to get crazy. It's just the way that environment is right now, trying to move workloads from one side to the other. There's a lot of really good things. I don't want to be too down on the Microsoft licensing folks. There's a lot of really good things that they're trying to help customers protect investments that they've made on-prem that they can then reuse on the Azure side. But to Phil's point, just the amount of time and energy that has to be consumed in that process is probably more than is reasonable. And I know that internally, from an Azure perspective, we've been trying to find ways to minimize that or to streamline that. But it feels like that's just kind of where we are from a maturity standpoint as we start to take those traditional enterprise workloads and move them into a new environment. Yeah. And I think this licensing discussion is a great point to kind of start wrapping up and summarize because, you know, one of the things I picked up here in this conversation is compatibility is about more than just technology working with each other. It's about a lot of other business processes and licensing and just how are you going to manage these things. And while it's important to consider that compatibility being part of how you consume it and how you manage it, you can't throw away the existing skill sets and investments that you have. So being able to look through cloud services when you're bringing them on board is important to understand whether they're going to work with what not only what you have technically, but also what you have process-wise and ensure that that's compatible as long as, as well as the networking aspect of things and the additional competitive advantages you might get from using multiple cloud providers. Yeah. And really, let's make sure that this is the point where we give a huge amount of kudos to VMware for both recognizing that so much of that operational process and so much of that operational investment today has been made into their ecosystem, but then also being willing to look at the hyperscaler clouds that their customers are asking for Mm -hmm. and saying, how do we build something that makes sense? And I know that the amount of time and energy and even just money that has been invested between VMware and AWS and Azure to build out these places where we hope customers will be happy from a compatibility and an operational streamlining method of getting things over into the public cloud. The amount of investment that they've made there is pretty staggering. So kudos to VMware for both knowing that they were the recipient of a bunch of that operational investment and then also being willing to give their customers what they were asking for. Yep, absolutely. Agreed. Well, with that, let's finish off this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. Thank you, Phil, Daniel, and Jeremiah for a great conversation. Also, thanks to iLand for making this podcast possible. Please check out the episode notes, panelist contact information, further information about this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can find our episodes on your favorite podcast apps. If you found this content useful, we'd really appreciate you sharing it with your friends and colleagues and rating us on your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the CloudBytes podcast. So it's incumbent on all of us to just keep listening and figuring out what we can do better.